Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 324 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode I chat to Yoon Van Hove about the squirrel-watching mystery game Nuts. Yoon has developed Nuts along with four others, those being Paul Clarissu, Almut Schwak, Charlene Putney and Torfi Asgerson. Now, Yoon is a great guest, really open and honest about how Nuts came to be. And it is an amazing game. It's really, really inventive. And I first saw it at PAX... No, correction. EGX. Uh, at last year. No, no, no. It only was last year. No, the year before. Because we're in bad times now at the time of recording this particular episode. But, you know, maybe in the future listen to this, the bad times will stop. But, yes, you know, it was in the before times. As we currently... Call. Anyway, stuff. Nuts is really a mystery game, as I already said. You are given the task of watching squirrels go places, and you do that. You place cameras around, and you watch the the squirrels do things, and you take photos of them doing things, and then it kind of, you know, starts off really quite innocent, but then starts to unravel very, very quickly. And it's really inventive and a wonderful game, and... Highly, highly recommend it. I did actually stream it about three weeks ago now. So, yeah, do, do have a, a look at the old streams on the YouTube channel of Kane and Rince. But uh, without further ado, let us listen to me from the past chatting about nuts. Yeah. Chris, if you'd be so kind. Yoon, who are Hello. you? Hello. Hello, who are you? And what do you do? <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, you, you called me, but uh, no, I'm, uh, my name is Jon. I'm from Belgium, living in Iceland, and I'm a game developer. Um, yes, you are. Yeah. And you made a game. Yeah. Lots, of, lots of other like-minded people called Nuts. It is generally yeah, is exactly. Called Most in, recently. In, yeah, in, in capitals, by the way. Nuts, but... N-U-T-S. Yeah, N-U-T-S, which is a game I discovered at EGX. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, but before we do... Let's find out a little bit more about you, Yoon. And is yeah. um, how did you make a start making video games? So the when I was like a, a teenager, I was very much into video games. Never allowed to have a console, so it was all on on computers, and uh, would basically spend every every afternoon and evening tinkering with them. Uh, figured out how to do some like basic MS DOS stuff and install and looking into files and all that weird stuff. So I was like pretty computer literate, started started making some games, um, but there was kind of nobody in my immediate network who like cared about it or who could give me any direction. So it didn't really go anywhere. Like I, I still have some like really old, like visual basic experiments, but to be doing that in like complete isolation was just didn't, didn't work for me. So didn't go anywhere until much later, um, I mean, by now it's it's ten years ago, but I was in my my mid twenties. I found out about this um, university in Denmark that has a master's program in game design and development, and I, I had a software bachelor by then. So yeah, like after completely giving up on my dreams when I was sixteen, <laughs> I went into regular uh, software development and, and, and engineering. Um, dropped out because I didn't really see myself working. Well, I didn't. I finished, but I dropped out of the kind of worlds because I didn't really want to work as a software developer in an office, did all sorts of stuff. And then when I found, when I saw this master's degree, I was like, Oh, I, I could probably do this. And maybe if I get lucky, I'll get like a job at uh, like a triple A company or something. Uh, Cause that was the only thing I could imagine existing. And then in my, literally in my first weeks, I just met so many people who were doing cool stuff. I had lectures about design and about, you know, people were sharing like indie games and prototypes and there were game jams. And it was just so deeply inspiring that like within those first weeks, I just completely changed from I'm going to approach this as like a career to like, I'm just so lucky to be here. I'm going to try to like soak it all up and then I'll figure out what it means at the end of it. Um, yeah, there our first lecture, the first semester, um, Miguel Sicart uh, is like a huge inspiration because he talks about like how play um, is kind of like fundamental to human nature and culture and, and kind of starting from there as a, as a starting point, you enter like me, this person who had like never really cared about, about anything in like academia or, or design philosophy or whatever. I started like because it came from a place that's kind of like justifies looking at games and thinking about them, I suddenly started having interest in all these other things like history and, and um, philosophy and, and design. And it was just like the, the absolute, like most amazing, like, like mind expanding experience to be in that university and, and with all these mostly international students who also like have nothing better to do than hang out with each other and obsess over this like new information. And then I started making games met some like-minded people and started a small studio in 2013 
called GlitchNap, which we released a couple of games with. We did some work for higher stuff, got a couple art grants as well in Denmark. Um, and then in 2017, I think we we went on hiatus, but like realistically, weren't there was a not not really any route for us to ever get back together. But it was more like, we called it a hiatus because we left on really good terms. Um, and since then, I've been kind of going at it alone. Yeah, that's the brief summary. That's fantastic. I, I love the fact that you spoke about like, about ten years ago when you went. Is that was that right? About mm, uh... yeah. And you said, you know, at the time, yeah, I, all, AAA was the only, you know, a game that was, it was a pivotal moment in the video game industry, wasn't it? That 10 years. People don't... Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, Xbox Live Arcade and indie arcade stuff. That just, mm-hmm. And then you had iOS arriving as well. And it's just, it was this great conflagration of, of creativity when you realised that the the barrier to entry was, was lifted. And... Uh, the tools to create video games becoming more and more uh, user friendly as the days go by, and uh, you know, high level languages are perfectly acceptable. And it's something we've spoken about often in this show. And I'm not going to talk about mm. again how you know back in the day in the in the 80s and 90s <laughs> they they had to use assembly to make video games. We've had that conversation on this show before. We needn't go about it again. But I think really that blossoming of creativity that surge it was as if it was someone would put like you know a big sort of lid on this pot and went it's gonna blow what it's got we gotta hold on to this and you know his big hand of corporate whatever it was of video game creation like we have to let go otherwise it's gonna explode it's gonna hurt us all and someone did and explode it did and that brought us games like the stanley parable and and Papers, please, and and Fez, and I'm talking about these games, you know, Super Meat Boy. These are, you know, now iconic titles that are always, in mm. many cases, over ten years old. I have to remind people that wasn't just five years ago; it was ten years ago. Yeah, and so so much has happened, and um, do know, I do know. Yeah, I think I'm. Yeah, I think I'm like the the generation that was like directly following sort of the, a lot of those successes like um and and was therefore also like really inspired by it but what was what was pretty interesting is that like we were at the same time we had like a little bit missed a boat like by the time we you know we could have reasonably gotten something out on steam the time where just having a steam game was enough was well over like you really needed to you know figure out other ways to like we needed to figure out indie marketing and we needed to figure out like relationships with publishers because like it was right now i feel i'm not saying it's easy or it has ever been easy but like a lot of information is available and is being shared um while yeah in in especially like the 2015 to 17 we had like a hard time just kind of like navigating because there was no yeah there was this like kind of established and somewhat entrenched generation of indies (laughs) um and a lot of the stuff that a lot of a lot of the like wisdom they were sharing just wasn't actually relevant to us anymore because Steam had already completely changed. Nobody really understood it, and um, we were just, yeah, like trying to figure it out with like much less information than the people who were already on there and or like already had released a couple of games. It was interesting, yeah. and I, I mean, I'm yeah. I'm still here, so <laughs> yeah, I just still remember 
using yeah. Steam going, oh, there's, some, there's a couple of new games up. Oh, let's have a look. That was a time, everyone, yeah. when you could mm. log on once a week and go, oh, there's a couple of new games on Steam. I wonder, I wonder what, what they're about. You would do that. It was a Thursday, I think. You used to be the able to do that. Just... <laughs> ancient, ancient history of 2013, 14. Yeah, it's like, you go back there, yeah. you would be like, no, you have no idea. Now we've got six or seven different platforms vying for your attention. You know, and it's just like, I, I just want to play some games, maybe. And what's, I do like going on good old games and buying games from the 90s for two pence. Because <laughs> like, they like yeah. cost about 80 quid at the time, when 80 pounds when they came out back in the day. And you now can buy them for, for half a dollar. <laughs> it's like, it's like because it, they fixed it all so you can run on modern machines. You're like, Oh, that's fun. It's only fifty pence, you know. Okay, okay. but uh, yeah, yeah. E- extraordinary times we live in. And I was about to say, nuts is definitely a product. I mean, we, if you indeed tried to pitch this to someone fifteen years ago, they'd ask, they'd ask you to leave immediately. They would indeed tell you <laughs> you were nuts because, like, why would you want to look at squirrels with cameras? This, this is a terrible idea. Yeah, but it's more. T- I don't care. There's more to it. It's what? <laughs> Get out. You know, and it's something of again. And apologies for the listening. If you heard this, don't say before. But it's something that happens a lot. These games that are that's focused on and spoken about in this show are. We talk about things that are just like, well, this would never work. Why would anyone want to experience this? And they're wrong. They're clearly wrong. And uh, you know, uh, I'm so happy that you agreed I mean, to appear on this show because I just sort of contacted you on a random, hoping like, oh, I hope they'll. They'll, they'll respond to my little query. And here you are, you, and you're talking to me now. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, we we thought about we thought that way about the game for a very long time. It's like no nobody's going to want to play this, which I think is true yeah. for yeah. for a lot of developers who try to like experiment. Like I think, uh, th- yeah, there's this thought. We, we can talk about design later, but there's there's this idea that I picked up a couple of years ago that like for something to be truly experimental, it needs to have the ability or like the, the the one of the possible outcomes is failure otherwise it isn't experimental that's just what a studied like best practice following best practices or whatever then it's not experimental and like i am really like just drawn to the experimental like i, I want to do stuff nobody's done before and find new experiences and the really scary thing is that you the thing you are doing can fail like you can just you're asking questions and the answer can just be no. And that's really scary. Yes, yes, yes um, that can be scary. So the, this, the sentiment the sentiment of like like summarizing the game of like, this is just boring, repetitive. This, there's no power fantasy in being like like a, you know, weird, reclusive uh, nature photographer. So nobody's going to want to do this was a legitimate worry I had until until the first, like, five positive Steam reviews came in, basically. Well, and my retort um, would be, well, look, you played Firewatch, didn't you? Oh, yeah. So shut mm. up. <laughs> you yeah. Know, I mean, that was, you know, you could argue that's a lot of things that didn't actually happen, but they did. But before we delve into that, I'm going to sort of move on to what's related to what you're talking about anyway, is what are... Sure your biggest influences as creators. And I think I know what that is. You've already hinted at that, but let's expand on that. What do you believe as creators of things is your biggest influence? So definitely in the, um, going back a bit to, to the history, my, my long history of 10 years, uh, way at the beginning when I moved to, when I moved to Denmark, um, 
there was this group of people who called themselves the Copenhagen Game Collective. And they definitely had like sort of a peak around exactly the time I moved there where they had a bunch of games that were being recognized in the IGF, in, um, in Indicate, and just locally, there would be a party organized by games people and like their games would be just like ubiquitously present. And I'm talking about games like Brutally Unfair Tactics, Totally Okay Now, and um, Darkroom Sex Game, and uh, JS Joust, which you have to be, you have to kind of almost have been around those events at that time for those games to make sense. But JS Joust actually grew out into, it's like Johann Sebastian Joust, um, into a released, com- commercially released game on the PlayStation. It did. Um, it did, yes. It's yeah. Why but there was, there was this. It's still the reason why I have seven move controllers. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think like single-handedly sold more than half of the move controllers in the world before, I guess, PSVR was a because thing. Because before VR, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- that was just so inspiring, and like, and like, I definitely like wanted to be part of whatever that was, and started to like volunteer at their events, and and became friends with some of those people. Um, so yeah, that was just massively inspiring. Like, I think they're they stumbled on this idea, like, what if we just, like, subvert, you know, every part of making games, including, for example, like, turning off the screen, which is where Johann Sebastian Jaws come from, and suddenly we're just two people in a room. Like, what, is, what does that mean? What do you do with that? And, and how do you end up, you know, designing for that? And then Doug Wilson, it's a huge inspiration, was doing a PhD at the time at my university exactly about this. Like, I think his... his um, I, I could be misquoting this, but uh, the title of his of his dissertation was "Designing for the Pleasure of Disputation." So, like, he was obsessed with just like house ruling and people arguing about like how to play a game and, and how that works as like a social system, and and then applying that again to like video games. You just came in from this angle that like at the time like so few people were were doing, and it felt really, um, really exciting to to make stuff in that place. So we were, yeah, we were constantly coming up with party games and, and social ex- experiments that weren't even necessarily like fun, but were just like weird and, and new. It was cool. So it was, um, I was, I definitely was not there from the beginning to say that I was like, I feel like I was like a huge part of it, but it was definitely like a massive experience for, for me being there at the time. Like, um, there was the other end as well like a lot of people in that university were also just like i want to make shooty strategy games and you know it's not like we weren't friends or anything it was just clear that like i was much more drawn to the social and the physical and the experimental than some other people who were more drawn to like i want to have a career as a level designer for first person shooter games like you know some of those people are i'm still close friends with today it was just yeah for me it was the the weird side of things um, it's the esoteric. It's the avant-garde. It's the, yeah. it's the. But that's yeah. a very, that's a very glib way of saying it. Please, uh, you think I'm think I'm. That, that, that's the thing. It. It's it, for me. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. So it wasn't about it being. It was only afterwards that it was sort of like put into these highbrow concept contexts. But at the time, it felt actually like this makes so much more sense. Like when you have like a physical social experience with with, you know, your friends or whatever, that just feels like really valuable and really unique and you and you know you're not even thinking about i don't know like media criticism at the time or something you're just literally having a different kind of fun and that was that was the appealing bit for me um the 
yeah, my other sort of big, big influence, um, like where, where maybe like part of the reason why this was appealing was like before I moved to Copenhagen in my hometown in Antwerp, I was like a little bit apart or like embedded in the like local music scene of like German bass, dubstep and breakcore, which is like, for me, those, those genres of music have always been like, it's like rave scene basically. Um, about like over overstimulation became like a an aesthetic that I was like that appealed to me and was kind of like compatible with that. So for a while we, yeah, experimented with with that stuff within the context of like the Copenhagen Game Collective and this like really fertile ground for that stuff. So like the the music scene and my experiences in in that um, were a big influence as well. Not I was never like a music producer. I was like one of the people who like drove the van to pick up the DJs, but just being in this like group of, of yeah, creative people who were like, like breakcore is like literally just about doing nothing that makes sense. Like doing completely breaking all rules and, and, and laws of, of music and trying to find what's, what's left in the end. Um, and I found that hugely compelling. Um, That's fantastic. And still try yeah try to take some of that into my work yeah yeah just draw from that experience and then say why was i there why was i so drawn to that what kept me going what kept me coming back for more when most sane mm. human beings would go i think i'm done now but no no you <laughs> kept going and uh and also like i said pushing the envelope there's another cliche and phrase but going yeah. to exploring the medium for what it is recognizing mm. for what it is and then seeing what you can do with it outside what is expected. And sometimes you get some magic from that. Sometimes <laughs> you get not so much magic, but other things that we're not going to mention on this show. <laughs> yeah. But And that's fine. That's fine. You know, and uh, again, something that's said a lot on this show is the creative process is very, very destructive. And that what you end up seeing being delivered outside and when something is deemed to be finished in inverted commas is the it's the mountains of work that was put into things that don't actually make it in mm. the end is phenomenal it is a piles and piles of post-it notes and code and art assets and all sorts that yeah, are absolutely. just tossed away not thrown away because you you will park it what often happens is you park it and go <laughs> you know what that's a fantastic idea just not for this game <laughs> yeah and that's that happens a lot and that's fine because that's what creative process is about but it's knowing having the courage to stand up and go no this is you know otherwise we're just delving into feet to creep and no one wants that no so next question then and i have no idea you can answer this sometimes with guests i have a pretty good idea but uh this I do not know how you can answer to this question, but let's see. Hey, this is what come up with you. What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Hmm. Yeah, I I thought a bit about this question, and um, the part of the problem is that the last year I've become a little bit of a, a recluse myself with, hmm. uh, you know the. Uh, the bad thing that's going on the in the world. The bad thing that's partially. going on in the world um, that we're currently the recording. I mean, 
Hopefully, yeah. when people listen to this in the future, maybe a year from That'd now, be great. the bad thing's not there anymore. So, <laughs> um, but it's it's like I've been really really disconnected from um, from a lot of people I used to hang out with and, and look up to at a, at events. Um, I think uh, the the thing that inspired me the most and also the most like directly. Um, is what what uh, JW Jan Willem Neiman and Kitty Kalis have done for their last two games, which is both like create really cool, um, like really interesting games with both minute and disc room, but also really thinking about like team constellation and what it means to be kind of like a creative individual in the space of games. They the fact that they just released two games in a row made by different constellations of people and, and labeled them with just their personal names, I think has been probably the single biggest influence on me in the last two years and was, and was why I set up nuts the way that we did, which um, for people who aren't familiar, the developer of nuts is all of our first names of the people who are part of the core team. And that's, yeah, there's a pretty direct line between that and between what what um, I just pulled out Jan Willem and Kitty because they're the common denominator of those two games. But just the the way of working of like there are so many cool people in our scene slash industry um, that have their own style and finding a way to just combine that rather than like there's an art director and the game is just that art director's vision and everybody else has to like work towards that. It's obviously an oversimplification, but um, yeah, taking like a stance against that and being like, no, this is like, you know, we're four, when four musicians work together or whatever, like they don't, there's not necessarily always an expectation that the next thing they do is going to be together as well. And yeah. Plus yeah. Minute and, and Disc Room are also really great games. So that helps. I, um, yeah, absolutely. That, that does definitely help. But I'm going to show my age here, but there was a band called Temple of the Dog which is actually okay. a, was a merger between Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. I'm not kidding. Right. Both. And they kind of merged together, made an album, then moved on. It was just a thing. They did. Right. They made a bunch of songs that the various parts of the both bands wanted to make together, but they couldn't make as their both respective bands because the sound was too, too weird and too off, too discordant. Right, right. So they... they made this album called Temple of the Dog, did the thing, and went, oh, that's cool, and then they went their separate ways. Not, you know, they, right. they, they both respected their work, of course, and they continued to do so, uh, but, you know, that's definitely, this is all 90s stuff, but I just remember, and when you're describing that, it's not too dissimilar to what you're describing, you know, a bunch of creative people come together just for this yeah. one thing, making a thing, because they can't make it in their own space for whatever reason that may be, uh, but they can well, make it with you, and then you do it, and then you, you, you know, Awesome. Exactly, and and the, and in music, that reason is like maybe more obvious because you know you have different instruments or whatever. But in in games, yeah, it just it surprises me that it that it doesn't happen more often. Like we have such an obsession with with creating these like I don't know like labels and brands that like we then that end up then kind of like swallowing the the names of the individuals sometimes, and especially for small teams, I just don't think that's necessary. There's a really good uh, talk by Zach Gage and Bennett Foddy from gdc 2019 i think called put your name on your game which was i guess another big inspiration there of like 
yeah, they just make a really strong case for, for like not don't even, you know, when, whenever you start working with new people on a new thing, it's like tempting to like label that collaboration something. But actually, that's also a really good way to like at the end of your career, make it like there's an extra layer of, of opacity or, or like it's difficult for for fans to even like find your work because because it's like hidden behind all these like different company names and labels and whatever so yeah 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 that's really thought-provoking but uh yeah it's a really good response and uh i mean yeah the music thing i had to go there is anything i could think of as really, yeah, yeah yeah you know and it's quite obvious that they wanted to mix it as well certain instruments wanted mm. to have a different mix because they're like, why? Why is the bass so quiet? Oh yeah, <laughs> so you know, they 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 just wanted they did the thing. So, um, last question well, of the first half was the question we have to ask because it's a video game podcast, and you know, I like talking about games that we're playing. Right, it's a good thing. Most of us, you know, who are involved with the video game industry in some form, actually like the medium itself. I know, weird, right? <laughs> so we like enjoying yeah. experience. So tell us, what are you playing right now? Um, so yeah, like I said, I haven't been really well connected in the last year, mostly because I've been working pretty hard on nuts and there's this weird, weird thing that happens where if I'm like, if I'm anxious about the thing I'm making, if I play something that's actually good, I get even more anxious. I just get like jealous or, um, or worried about like, oh, my thing is not going to be as good as this. So I, in the literal like last weeks, the only thing I've been playing is uh, a game of Civ Six with my wife every evening, where we play a couple of turns. Um, Civilization. There is on absolutely the, on nothing the wrong with that. Oh friend. no! Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a great, it's a it's great a game, and it serves it serves game. an incredible. Yeah, like it's it's like you know I I, I like the game and I and I like you know I like the gameplay of the game enough for it to be interesting. But what I really like is the place that it has in our home and in our relationship actually which i don't i don't know if that's true for anybody else or even even relevant but um for us it's it's just like filling this gap where otherwise we would maybe like be watching something on tv we're actually like doing this thing together and you have these like pauses so we play turn-based she'll play a turn and, and as, as soon as you get sort of like past the first 50 turns or something you're every turn starts to take like quite a couple minutes of you know doing stuff and we we quite often are like doing different things in between like i might be reading something and then she plays her turn and then it's my turn she reads something or does something but also like we start doing like little house chores or we start doing like physical exercises like yoga or something in between and there's always something to talk about like if you know if you're like reading something you might not want to interrupt the other person but sometimes we're just like both looking at each other playing the game and it basically becomes this this like really nice way of spending time together for us in in the evenings um so yeah i like i like civilization for maybe a different reason than many other people like civilization but that's a wonderful little story and i forgot you could actually do that mm. with civ on the switch you play it you, yeah. you play it on the switch you actually just play your turn yeah and then and go, we, oh, we okay, play it done. yeah mm. we 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 don't so we it's not like we're never like in competition it's more that like we, we we just decided to not play in a way where we're like hiding any information from each other it's more that like we're playing it like quite casually we're playing against a bunch of ais and usually at least in the beginning we try to not like antagonize each other too much 
Um, so it's it's like a little bit in the direction of an idle game more than than the game actually wants you to play it. Like we're just watching a bunch of numbers go up and watching a bunch of like little army dudes fight each other, and that's compelling enough for us in this particular moment. And you know, um, yeah, maybe not how other people play it, but it really works well for us. No, it's fine. Uh, absolutely, I mean, there's many, many, many different ways of playing Civ. Um, yeah, which I still call it this to this day. Generally, call it Civilization's a bit of a mouth. That's what it's called. Yeah, uh, but I've been playing it since when it was the first one. And what's really a problem with that is that you still have that muscle memory of still playing it like it's Civ mm. One or Two. Like, don't do that. Why? Because it doesn't work anymore. Oh yeah. <laughs> You know, it's the, yeah. the, the strategies that you adopted back then, the, the, the system is way more complex, thankfully, now. But I just love the fact that you, you you know, you do your, your thing, you build a couple of roads and you establish a colony somewhere and go, oh, okay, what happened? Oh, I got attacked by a bear. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, you find you, you built your first boat or something. It's just... And I've also played a lot of cooperative civilization where you're actually working mm. with other players against an AI sort of, and you actually have alliances and you, and there was one time, I'll never forget it, this is many, many years ago when I was playing Civilization Four with some friends and I became the the uh, in, uh, uh, industrial war complex sit, um, civilization where like, oh yeah, Chris, could you uh, deal with that lot? What about you? We're too busy building a new sort of utopian paradise over here. Could you just fight everyone? That'd be great. Thanks. Bye. Like, what? So, so I ended up being this sort of warmongering lunatic, whereas everyone else is benefiting yeah. from my... Yeah, uh, your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Apparently they were my strengths. I was just... just, just but uh, <laughs> there was like, there you go, Chris, you're the uh, war machine. You just you do that. Like, what? Since when? Are... Yeah, just go. Do your thing. What do you mean my thing? They were just trying to, uh, I don't know, butter me up. But uh, yeah, good good shout. Civilization Six on the... I've only ever played it on a PC, I must confess. Um uh but uh yeah i'm sure the other yeah know. no yeah the other thing i've been doing i've been keeping up with for the last year is the sock pop games i don't know if you're familiar no the, expand on that. there's a dutch dutch collective uh, of indies there's there's four of them who release they have a patreon and they release a new game every two weeks that's usually kind of like mostly made by one of them um but like they they all help each other out and they are like some of the most, it's like one of the most incredible, like catalogs of games. And they're, you know, they're all made in a short time. You pay three or five dollars a month, and you get basically this like influx of like small games. And they're all, I would say, like they're way more playable and polished than the average like game jam game, for example, yes, or like course, or like yes. experiment that's yeah. put out. But they're not as polished as like a full Steam release. Um, some of them actually are, and that's just an incredible performance but i think um there there's a thing that developers talk about a lot is that like one of the most valuable skills you can learn is how to finish something because you know no matter how terrible a released game it's always infinitely better than an unreleased game right like because that one basically just doesn't exist yeah, for doesn't anybody exist besides you. outside the person yeah who's like you know got the compiler yeah it's like yeah, exactly it's just, and f- finishing yeah. finishing stuff is really hard and it really is. you know is super difficult and they're they're just they've set themselves on this like crazy routine of having to finish something and me and some friends we then we then like play their games with that knowledge 
and you find so many clever like little design things like choices and scoping decisions that they have made to make this possible that it's like i feel even with playing them you know obviously they're a lot of them are fun little games and little ideas and experiments they're they're quite original most of them if if not gameplay at least like visually they'd be interesting yeah. um yeah. But also, it's super interesting to think that like somebody was able to make this in a few weeks' time. That's just bananas, and um, yeah, they're really good. And and because of that, they end up the thing. And we'll we'll talk about some about nuts later. But just like finding these like new visual aesthetics, for example, is something they're they're clearly always trying to do. It's like to make sure that your game doesn't just look like every other video game. And having to do just that every two weeks is such an interesting problem. Like they're almost. They're the closest I can imagine to like uh, people who do like illustration or whatever, who who uh, create daily sketches, uh, or people do this in Blender sometimes as well. They'll have like a, a like a creative practice of posting daily sketches on Instagram or something. You you can't really do that with games. Uh, they're they're like both way, way more time consuming and expensive to make and harder to consume, right? You can't just scroll through an Instagram of video games. Uh, but they're the closest I can imagine to that, and I think it's a it's a it's a well um, I don't know documented good good creative practice is to just be active and, and find a way to have constant output, and they've done that, and I think it's just great, and I'm very jealous of <laughs> all of their good ideas. Wow. Well, if they're Sock inspiring pop. people like yourself, yes, I'll definitely have a look at that after this, and let me put something in the show notes a link to it. Mm-hmm. Because that's really, really cool. Um, right, let's 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 move on. So we let's let's delve in. Sure, let's yeah. Go headfirst into what is nuts.
So, Ewan, before we can uh, talk about nuts in you know in any great detail, we need to explain to the audience what it is. Now, good luck with this because you're going to need it. What is <laughs> nuts? Nuts is a single-player surveillance mystery. Is I think what it says on our Steam page. Um, it's in my own words. I don't have a practiced elevator pitch, but um, it's a first-person perspective, um, kind of strange-looking game. But you get sent into the forest to observe a colony, um, or yeah, I guess colony is the right word of squirrels um, to study their behavior for some as part of some academic study and you're asked to like give like field report results to someone um, this is taking place in some fictional 90s era with like quite clunky old like cameras and printers and TVs um, and the main loop of the game is this you you get a location where you know a squirrel lives and you get a bunch of equipment and you're asked to find out where does it go? Where does it keep its nuts? Which is where the title comes from. Um, and to do that, you set up the cameras around where you know it lives. You go home and you just watch the recorders, the recordings of those cameras. You find out like, oh, it jumps out of a tree, jumps to a rock, runs away. And you now go back outside. It's the next day. Uh, and you move your cameras into like this new direction to find out more information about it. And maybe, oh, there's like a vantage point up on a big rock somewhere, or uh, there's a riverbed. So maybe it's good if you put like a camera in the riverbed and you make all those like decisions. And then you go back and watch the recording and you repeat that. Um, and then um, to make it more interesting as well, we add like, there's like narrative payoffs that happen as you're as you're doing this or like narrative progression as well. Uh, but ultimately, you find you find the stash, and your uh, a person named Simon will drive you to your next uh, mission, your next location. And there's six um, b- big-ish or like at least distinct areas uh, in the game, or seven, six or seven. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, a few. Yeah, I um, know. It's best not to. But it is. Yeah, it's, it's a couple hours. Yeah, it's 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 a it's an extraordinary experience. Um, Going around with these big, big, heavy cameras from 20, yep. 25 years ago. Um, uh, because we'll talk about that, why it's set then and why that technology. But uh, CRTs abound, video recorders, fax machines, landline phones that used to stick on the wall, apparently. Uh, yeah. That kind, of, that kind of thing. All that stuff from the era, which is now generally gone by the wayside. Um, but. Um, one of the things I've found with when playing nuts is that while the task is seemingly benign, you know, just watch, take some photos of squirrels. Well, how hard could it be? <laughs> um, and it, it it is quite fun because they're a bit mischievous and they don't they know what you're trying to do, and they just basically lead you up a merry path to to stop you from actually finding out what they're trying to do for reasons that I won't go into. But, um, yeah, they're just very mischievous and uh, mischievous, I should say. And there is always that sense that there's something else going on here more than you simply being hired to take photos 
the squirrels. And uh, there's that sense of foreboding. Uh, it's not oppressive, but it's definitely there. You definitely, from the outset, from the time you dumped outside on the road and go, there you go, off your pop, just go down that, that path and you'll find the uh, caravan where you'll be working for the next six or seven weeks or months or what have you. Which is, I mean, it simulates that period of time. You don't, it's not real time. <laughs> that would be absurd. Um, but right. I just want to ask, what did you do in Nuts to, in, to, to encourage an atmosphere, whether it's foreboding or what have you? What, do, what elements of the design did you do to encourage a certain kind of experience? Right. So the... Um, the the way it looks started off like the the seed of 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 the final look of nuts was was a bit of a happy accident of um of constraints and i think i think i want to talk about that later but but mm. basically the 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 sort of practical or technical example or, or or um explanation is that we don't use light we use uh fog and um distance based uh visibility so the the normal way I'll try, I'll try not to get too technical, but the normal way that games nowadays, like three D games in first person, would do would create like the world and create contrast between you know two surfaces that have a similar color. You need some way to like differentiate them visually is with lighting. So like their angle towards like wherever if there's like a sun or if there's a light in the room uh, will determine like if they're like a little bit darker or whatever, right? Like look at any 3D game and stuff will have shadows and stuff will have a dark side and a light side, depending on whether it's facing a light source. Um, and one of the first decisions we made was to just throw that completely out of the window, which very few 3D games have, have done. Um, and find a different way to create this, this distance or this, this uh, contrast. And ours is based off of distance. Now, what, what we didn't really realize when we made it, we, we made a decision, honestly, just to be different and to start from a new place where, you know, if nobody knows what you're doing, there's no way to say if it's good or bad. <laughs> um, so we, we, we did that and started looking at it and the effect it gives while like everything that normally has like light and shadow, you get the feeling of like where it's daytime, we're outside, the sun is shining is kind of the effect you usually get in an outdoor environment if there's light and shadows. But with nuts, because of this like distance base, it kind of feels like it's, it's like dusk, or it's dawn and it's really like misty, foggy, like there is light, but um, it's like ubiquitous. Like you, there's these days, um, at least in, they're quite common in Iceland. I, they're quite common in Belgium. I think in the UK as well, probably everywhere a little bit. Days where like, it's so cloudy, doesn't even have to be foggy, but it's so cloudy that you can't tell where the sun is. You know, it's there, yeah, yeah. you can see yeah. stuff. You don't know where it is. No, no. In those no, days, no. I, I think the only reason nuts doesn't feel oppressive is because it's it's outdoors and there's quite a lot of open space. Like we didn't make yeah. the forest like too dense. We didn't make the areas too small. But I think if it was indoor or in like an urban environment, it would actually feel really oppressive because of this. Um so I think, yeah, that fog decision for whatever reason we started at that point, like fed into the feel of the game. And then yeah. We liked it so much that we started building everything else in that direction as well. So, like, we had 
squirrels and cameras in Forest before even we as developers knew what what the story is. Like we didn't know the answer to like what are the squirrels actually doing right away. We had this like atmosphere and then started thinking of like what's the story we want to tell in this space. Excellent. So one fed the other rather than you setting out to make a certain atmosphere atmospheric game you decided to place a limitation on yourself and from which an atmosphere was born. That's really, that's a bit yeah, and ultimately that's what it sounds like you're telling me. Just as a, as a little disclaimer of a lot of the, the stuff I'm talking about is like a lot of it wasn't as deliberate as I might make it sound. You know, I've spent a lot of time already d- during the process, like analyzing it and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. But a lot of this was was happy accidents and the result of experimentation. So yeah, I'm not saying that that's like that. I'm not saying that that was our process. It's just that that's where we ended up and where, why I think we ended up there. I want to talk about sound design uh, now. It's mm-hmm. it's quite incredible what you've done. Everything from the spot effects to the score, it's all intertwined with each other. There's not a separate thing. They are linked depending on what's going on, what you're doing, everything has the sound is just really, really thought about. Was it an early development in Nuts that the sound would be so prominent? Um, yeah, like, I think absolutely we, um, we got very lucky finding the absolute right person. Um, I got to know Almut uh, Almutraco or Mooch, as she's better known, um, at an event where she was doing a live Foley performance. Now, I wasn't familiar with Foley, uh, definitely not with the idea that you could do this live, but uh, Foley, in, in my understanding, is the, the like profession or the role of making sounds with physical objects for originally for movies or even for like live plays. Somebody walks through, you know, snow in a movie that isn't a microphone being held next to somebody walking on snow. That's usually somebody trying to recreate the way you think the sound would be in a studio somewhere. And that's a Foley artist. And so, um, Mooch has done this for film and for games. Uh, and I stumbled into a room one day at the Amaze Festival in Berlin, where she was doing this live as a performance. She was surrounded by microphones and by stuff, making all these sounds in real time while somebody was playing a video game on the projector with the sound turned off. So the video game character would walk. It was like a point and click adventure. Uh, I don't remember which game it was, but the video character, the game character would walk to the left and she would just be like scuffing her feet on like a card or like a wooden box. Um, and it sounded just amazing. And I was like, that's, (laughs) that's so far removed from, um, anything I've ever done that, that it appealed to me. Um, and, started talking to her she was available she was interested and from that point on as i as i tried to do with most of the other collaborators i just gave her a lot of creative freedom so any interesting sound decisions are entirely uh i would say attributable to her um but the 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 place where we kind of landed again this wasn't necessarily deliberate but where i feel like we we in the near the end realized like here's what we're that's what we're doing and this is why this works so well because the visuals are so abstract in the game we that was like an extra reason for us to make the sound like literal. Um, there's some some examples of like where where audio actually tells a better story than the visuals. I think Oberdin, for example, does does a 
a little bit of a similar thing where the visual information you get is really limited, but the audio information you get just fills in those gaps like beautifully. Um, and uh, like Dogville, this Lars von Trier movie is a similar thing where the, the entire set of the movie is like an empty theater with just chalk lines drawn on the ground. And there's like the occasional prop, like there'll be a chair in like a, a chalk lines square but when people open a door, you hear like a super realistic door door opening sound. And that creates such an interesting, you know, you're you're kind of challenging everybody's brains to to fill in those blanks by 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 like limiting the information they get through one of the normal channels. Um, and as soon as we kind of realized, like, oh man, yeah, that that's actually a great sort of high-level direction for this, uh, she started, I guess, zooming in on that even more and um yeah there's there's also this this uh, like technical reason why we did this uh, this is the first time i worked with um an audio engine this is another technical term but what that what that basically means is that in my code as a programmer the only thing i do is say like the player dropped something on the floor or the player puts down a camera um and what and the, the like naive way to implement sound for that would be to just say, you know, like camera drop sound play now. But with this audio engine, it's called FMOD, uh, she actually has an entire like backside of this that she can wire up a whole bunch of like crazy parameters, variations. She can like, you know, play a different camera drop sound if it's raining. And I don't have to care about any of that. It's like the, the, I think part of the reason why sound design sometimes gets a little bit overlooked in games is because it's just extra programming, except the way we set it up and we're using this audio engine, which a lot of people use this audio engine. We're not unique, but it was, it was new information for me, um, was to just like, just empower her so much to, to have even more creative freedom and, and creative control over that side of the game. And it, it just worked out absolutely amazingly. And I, yeah. I've, I've told her this in person as well, but I, I hope that uh, whenever I get to make another game that she's available. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic job. It just, mm. you're right, it, it fills in the gaps because we're going to move on now to um, the the limited color palette that's in Nuts, which is related to the previous question in that, well, you have an amazing sound palette, but for reasons that aren't important really, it is important to understand um, how this came to be in that the palette, the color palette of nuts is very limited. It seems to be four colors. I might be wrong, but all it is. Yeah, I think it's four colors. These colors do change. They're not always the same, depending on the time of day and where you are and that kind of thing. But they are always four colors. Again, Tell us how this came to be with nuts. Why didn't? Why does nuts have a limited palette as regards to its? Yeah, display? the l l little little caveat is that it's there is a gradient in there, so you know yes. if you would look at yes. the pixel, there's way more colors. But yes, um, therefore, um, for basic colors, we actually get, gave them names and we set up the game so that we can we can just like replace a single texture and the entire an entire level will ha would have a different color palette just to make sure that we wouldn't like cheat or have to like remember uh you know this is supposed to be red here you know like we just say this is the color number one or this is color number two um 
we were going to try to do three colors, but that was actually, yeah, it was just too limiting. So two of the four colors are like a little bit similar or like complementary. Um, I mean, I, I guess they're all complementary, but the, um, I guess the reason for it, 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 it grew from the experiment. So that I made uh, a game jam version of Nuts back in 2018 in like a weekend. And it actually definitely shared a lot of like similarities where it also only had three colors. And it was also already about squirrels and stuff. There it was literally just like a scoping decision. So this is part of my, my design philosophy that I, I can't remember where, uh, where I picked it up. I definitely didn't come up with it, but that like the constraints, setting constraints is a really good way, like early is a really good way to end up in like interesting design spaces because like you you want to get get away from that like blank sheet of paper as fast as possible so limiting yourself and like removing from these like things that people normally do can end you up in in like really interesting places and i think the fact that there's there's now i mean there's literally right now a bundle of black and white games that includes like minute and over it in two games we already talked about um it's quite a bit that's like an appealing starting constraint like what if the game is in like black and white to the point where i i don't personally even think that that's super original anymore like black and white has been around the block for a while now and and it's it's cool but it's not um you know we we can try something else and then i started thinking like why is it why does monochrome have to be black and white like what if it's like radically different colors where do you end up there and um, did the thing with the with the fog based rendering or the distance based rendering, and suddenly ended up in this like really like new valley of 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 visual looks. Um, and it was just it was just terrain and like uh, cylinders with a tree texture that I'd put in there, and it looked um, I thought it was super interesting. And then when Paul Clarissou did the uh, who did all of the like arts, three modeling and design and, and shader programming and all that stuff. Um, came came into the project. He just like took that to like a completely new level and started finding. You know, it's a really basic idea, right? Like we don't do light, we don't do shadow, and we we're only going to have like two or three colors. He took that into like the look of the final look of the game, and uh, yeah, we just really we just really liked it, and it was it was too tempting not to to use like the highlight color to set objects, you know, to make them pop off the. The background layer that we you know we initially tried to create some sort of like guidelines for ourselves or like things that have discolor mean that uh but ended up moving away from it again and just deciding like well, let's just like this is just our tool set we can color anything whatever color we want we'll just do it in a way that we think looks good some some people have complained about like this thing is red and this other thing is orange so but they do the same thing like yeah there's, there's not really a good reason for that um yeah I mean, it does serve a function in highlighting certain things, and I found that's been very useful for that. Like this thing, you really want to interact with, and this thing, yeah, no, maybe not so much. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's just an object. It's just part of the scenery. It was this, this is the thing you need to interact with, and I found mm. it, you know, very, very informative, but also quite soothing because it just cuts to well, this is, you know, you're not yeah. squinting through it. You actually, you know, you, if anything, your pupils expand as you, you get drawn into this very strange world filled with. Squirrels mm -hmm. and their nuts. 
and cameras. Yeah. There's, it, yeah. there's another, th- another thought if we, if we have time, but <laughs> can also move on if you want. But, no, no, no. You, please, um, please. There's this, um, there's this talk that uh, a developer from Unity, which is the, the, the engine we're using, so like, like they're effectively you know, a software company. They make game middleware. Um, at one of their like, conferences, one of their developers was standing on a podium, and they were, they were presenting the roadmap of like, what is Unity going to be doing in, this was 2014 or something. I was in that room. It was super interesting. He said, he basically opened up to a room of like 500 developers and said like, what do you want us to be working on? And he picked out three people and they all, one was like, oh, we need like a better debugger and somebody else, you know, people pitching what they think is the most important thing for Unity to work on. And then he just like, collected those three ideas and was like, okay, you get to have one of those. <laughs> and, and suddenly it became clear to me that like scoping, you know, like you're always limited by something. Like there's a deadline for release or there's a maximum amount of manpower that you can put through a project. And so an extra, re- it's like, yes, constraints and you up in like interesting design spaces, but it's also, um, you're, you're constantly pitting ideas against each other. And with this like, minimal color, like abstract visual style. What we also did is we, we created like budget space to have more game in there, like in a way, like to have bigger levels or to have um, more content. And that felt really appealing as well. Like we, we don't need to actually care about um, textures and we don't need to care about, you know, because we're already abstracting, it's less jarring that things look similar. Like if you go down the road of like, I want to build this like hyper-realistic forest well, you better make sure no two trees look too much like each other because that really sticks out now. And yeah, so the abstraction became appealing for like multiple reasons. And and it's not that we wanted to cut a corner, it's that we wanted to like create this like space to so that we could focus on, on other things. Like some of the 3D models, I think, went through a few iterations and I think look amazing in the final product. That's time that we could have easily have spent on making more textures, but we decided not to. So, no, because you didn't need to. <laughs> yeah. So, my last question to you is this: Why is Nuts set in the nineteen nineties? We've touched upon this earlier, but let's delve into it because the technology of the time was quite cumbersome, um, kind of difficult to work with. Most of it didn't work. Um, so what, what, why, why did you go to that period? I mean, granted, I lived through it. I was there. It was, it was my first <laughs> PC was in 1990s. I remember getting that after you know, defecting from the Amiga, which finally died as a platform. And, uh, you know, it, uh, so was it to do with pacing of it? Was it to be give it a sense of like a tactile experience as you put the bits of paper into the fax machine? What, what, why, was, why did you do it that way? Yeah, it's definitely coming from like a, a tactile kind of ambition. I think the, the main idea is that um, there's a really good reason why we've consolidated so much of our lives into computers and our, our, you know, everything's paperless and you can do everything with your phone. Like there's these, these like, I don't know, viral GIFs of what a desk used to look like in the 80s and what it looks like today and how like so many of those like physical devices like a fax and a phone and a tray of paper are now just like little icons in our in our phones 
and like I don't want to like romanticize the time before computers or smartphones or whatever. I just think if you're making a virtual experience, the downsides of like, you know, this isn't real paper, so I don't have to deal with, you know, clutter or, or environmentalist reasons or whatever. Like we can have as many papers in this video game as we want. So the, and then, and on top of that, like what I really like having stuff like narrative ideas or gameplay ideas represented like physically in the game, as opposed to you uh, having them in UI in the user interface. Um, so it, it started to make sense like, okay, we need to, I want to be able to like, look at this footage. Um, I want to be able to like send this and, you know, sure we could add a send button to the printer, but actually it's like, it's really fun to be responsible for all these objects. Like you can tell this in, in like so many VR games, for example, it's, it's so, they're just solely based around like managing a bunch of like 3d objects in a, in a 3d space and um yeah that was and the, the like resurgence or not resurgence but like the, the, the popularity wave of like simulator games that are just about like doing if you don't look at the narrative or whatever or the or the gameplay reasons for doing so you're just moving objects around and um we wanted to have that and then you just ended up in this era of yeah, like like, we at some point called it like the mini disc era. So it's like it's like really weird, like kind of late '90s era where all like a bunch of the technologies that we use today exist, but they're really bad. Like the internet is bad; nobody really knows what it's for. We have like wireless communication devices, but they're rare and they're usually like super proprietary. Like you know, only we have two devices that can wirelessly communicate, but it's only those two that can do it. Um, which is like, you know, GPS technology exists somewhere and you might, you know, have to carry a, a backpack to have with like an antenna on it to use it and stuff like that. And that was just became, uh, that was like, I think a really good era because a lot of things were possible, like communication and, and technology and video recording and whatever. But, um, but still every device has a singular purpose. Uh, if we would if we would set nuts in a modern era, it would just be an empty caravan, and you would just have a phone, and yeah, that would just that just doesn't feel nearly as compelling. Yeah, I mean, um, I was just trying to think how you'd set up the cameras. You'd have those remote Bluetooth <laughs> cameras, wouldn't you, or something? Yeah, really small, exactly. dinky little cameras. You may have a drone. The drone's a bit loud. Um, yeah, but you might have a drone to initially spot where the where they are. And then you pull the drone back and then you actually set them up. It would be a different experience to the point where it's like, this isn't... And the phone would be ringing, the same phone you'd be using is the same phone you'd be using to communicate with the uh, professor. Uh, who uh, yeah. And it wouldn't be talking to her. Many of it would be via text or emails or or something, you know, or yeah. on, on Teams or something. Yeah, it would be on Teams, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And uh, it would just be, just be yeah, I think ob like these objects are just really good signifiers for yeah. their function. So we yeah. don't have to, yeah. you know, to yeah. tutorialize a lot of the stuff. Even I was, I was so worried that like people wouldn't, you know, know, remember what a fax is or whatever. No. Um, but that's been, that's been okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, and many yeah, people, like, they wouldn't have used them. I have, I did remember when mm. they, when they came and went, I'm very, I'm, yeah. I'm old. And, uh, 
yeah, they did come and go. They did arrive and then suddenly went. And uh, they uh, exactly. Yeah. So, so, but yeah, it, it's just like, well, there's the play button. We, you know, what I love about a video recorder thing was like you have this little you you go, okay, well, there's the play button. How do I know there's a play button? Well, we still have them. Oh yeah, the little arrow exactly. pointing and, to the right. Why? And we no. still do the, we do the same we do the same thing. Like we use icons that reference you know the phone icon references a phone. Yeah. Like fro- that is the, yeah. the, the a floppy that, disk r- represents r- saving. No one uses exactly. those anymore. And so when you're <laughs> when you're making a video game when you're making a virtual world, you can use the real actual object. Yeah. Like you don't you know because it's still simulated. So there's no reason for me to like put the phone into like an icon in a UI if I can just put it there as a real phone and it's way yeah. more fun and you have the jiggly cord and yes the um, big long cord yeah. that yeah that you could strangle yourself with it's just great stuff so <laughs> nuts now I've got the name of the developer here is Noodle Cake Games that's right isn't it oh. so Noodle Cake's our publisher um, yeah, but they collaborated pretty, yep, pretty yep. deeply and then so it's the, so, so published by Noodle Cake Games but uh, the mm-hmm. uh, the developers are a collection of people. I could name them all, but uh, yes, and uh, it's out now on Steam, uh, Humble Store, and Itch.io for Windows PC and Mac OS. It's also out on Apple Arcade and uh, Nintendo Switch. So there are the, yep. the, all the platforms you can grab it on. Um, I've personally played it on Apple Arcade. It's, it's great. Um, it's it's you, about uh, three three hours long, which is yep. information I like to have before playing. So, yeah. So, Yuni, uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you very very much for explaining in such great detail the extraordinary game that okay. is nuts. So, thank you. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, and you're more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever next thing you've got calling out your. I'd love to. But in the meantime, thanks very much. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com.